Good morning and welcome to the Coffee and Cap Rates podcast, your go-to source for New York City's latest commercial real estate insights. This program is brought to you by Ariel Property Advisors. I want to start with a big thank you for everybody who's here today in our in-person Coffee and Cap Rates. That's a very exciting time and we've waited for this time to be in person for two and a half years and I'm definitely grateful for the opportunity to be here. Okay, so let's talk about New York City real estate a little bit. There are three things we're going to discuss. First is the facts and numbers, two, some insights and observations, and three, we're going to talk about some drivers and what we might see moving forward. And for that, we're going to eventually incorporate the panelists as well. But let's take a minute just to see what we went through over the past two and a half years. What a roller coaster. I don't know if you felt the same, but that's how it felt, at least in the past two and a half years. And now it feels like we're on top of it, trying to figure out if it's going to go down steep to the side, maybe a little flatter. We really don't know. But what we do know is that New York City has been amazingly resilient throughout this. And in fact, investment sales in the first six months of 2022 were $22 billion. If you look at the past 12 months, that has been 45 billion dollars, the highest in five years. To give these numbers a little bit perspective, this $45 billion is the budget of the state of Pennsylvania. That's a lot of investment and an amazing statistic. Another stunning statistic is the growth in the residential rental market, and that helped multifamily transactions a lot. We're talking about $9 billion in the first six months of the year and $17 billion if you look at the past 12 months also the highest in the past five years. But it wasn't only the COVID rebound that helped us transact there. It was also the hefty inflation and the unbelievable jump in interest rates that led investors to actually lock in rates before they jumped even further. As a result of that, 75% of all multifamily transactions were in the free market category. Will Blodgett has been a veteran investor in multifamily, both in New York City and outside, and he's going to tell us more about it when we speak with the panelists. What's also amazing is that pricing grew in multifamily, but pricing grew while pricing compared to 2019 stayed low. So what do I mean by that? Let's take an example of Manhattan. Pricing grew by 12% in the past six months but it's still 21% on a price per square foot basis, lower than what it was in 2019. And that means a significant upside compared to where we were pre-pandemic. And I have another astonishing statistic for you. The national cap rate for major markets is 75 basis points lower than the average in New York City. It means that a building, an average building in New York City produces 20% more income than other states. And I think it's not sustainable. I think that it definitely shows that New York City is undervalued. And as a result of that, investors have been putting money back here and in many cases selling in other states. So these are some really beautiful apartment buildings that we have here in the picture. They're free market, they're luxury, and the investors were institutions like Blackstone and KKR. But why do they invest? They invest because of three main reasons. Number one is the fact that New York City is undervalued. Number two, these buildings, these free market buildings are considered inflation hedge. And number three, 
there is a remarkable residential supply constraint in the city. In fact, by 2030, we're going to be short 560,000 units. That's a revenue statistic. And that means that the growth in the residential rental will probably continue. So this is for free market, but did anybody hear about HSTPA, the Housing Stability and Tenant Protection Act of 2019? I know you did. That was a pretty extreme legislation that took place in 19 and made rents fixed in every rent-stabilized asset or building or unit. A few observations there. The first is that interest rates hurt that asset class or subsegment the most, and as a result of that, there were only 17% of all multifamily transactions that were in rent stabilized. That's very different than what we experienced in the past few years. The good news is that there's still capital for it and some capital that's coming from out of state to invest in it because it's relatively stable, so it's downside protected, and the cost is relatively lower compared to other sub-segments. In the end, that's what's phenomenal about New York City, the fact that every sub-segment, even if it's challenged, as a buyer. New York City has been exceptionally strong when it comes to affordable housing, but managing and running affordable housing deals is not a walk in the park. It requires a mission-driven mindset. The first half of 2022 was somewhat slower, comparatively speaking, compared to other years, but I can almost guarantee that the second six months are going to be very strong. We know that because some of the inventory we're marketing is going to close at the end of this year, and that's going to contribute to that. One of the aspects of the city that always amazes me is the amount of construction when you walk the streets and cranes and so on. But that is also, at the same time, surprising that we are so much behind when it comes to new housing. In fact, for the first six months of the year, developers tried to rush into the ground and win the 421A tax abatement that went away in June. But that didn't help transaction volume. Transaction volume for land actually dropped 24% to $2.3 billion. And here again, as a result of that, the construction pipeline is still behind. And it's also worth noting that when it comes to New York City, the costs of construction are the second highest in the nation. And as a result, we think that it's not going to be economically viable for a developer without a tax abatement. So we really need some help there when it comes to building residential rental construction. Rashid Walker is here with us today. He's going to talk more about development, the challenges and opportunities of building in New York City, and we're excited to hear you when we start with the panelists. But some people think it's attractive to own versus rent, and the condominium market has done really well. Prices grew over the past six months, and the velocity was 26% higher. As a result of that, in prime Brooklyn areas, we've seen growth in land value by 10%, and that's substantial. So the residential recovery has done well. It's been significant. Let's jump to office. We start with office. Talk about office occupancy, which is at 41% of pre-pandemic levels. That's not where we want it to be, but it's still double what it was last year. We have two observations. Number one, there was an incredible growth in the bridge and tunnel vehicles going into the city. It's back to 2019 level. People are driving in, parking garages are charging, which is great for them. But another interesting statistic is that subway ridership is at only three and a half million people per day. It used to be five and a half million 
people per day. It's going to grow to four by the end of next year. So we think there's another growth opportunity for office, but it's going to take time. When it comes to capital investing in office, it's all about flight to quality. Investors, if they invest, they want to see extraordinary buildings. And 475 Fifth Avenue is just an example of that great location with three great tenants. So what's the future of office? We have some ideas, but we also have Andrea Himmel here, who's going to speak with us about that. She's an office owner. She's going to tell us what she sees. We're going to also talk about the $2 billion Google investment that took place earlier this year. The strength of New York City is shown by the significant growth in tourism, which contributed a lot to the employment growth in the first six months of the year. In general, the hotel fundamentals have done really well. And let's talk about two or three points there. The average daily room, the ADR, is higher than it was pre-pandemic by 8%. It means that it costs us more to go to a hotel in New York compared to 2019. The second fact is that tourism is only at 80% of what it was pre-pandemic. We have another 20% of growth, and that's projected to be next year. Occupancy is at 84% versus 92%. So again, we have all that growth opportunities. Hotels have an opportunity in 2023, most likely. Foot traffic. Foot traffic jumped 52%, but still 23% below pre-pandemic levels. Another upside potential. When you talk about retail, we've seen stabilizing in rents, but we also saw that if you're in a residential location, you're doing much better. So the Upper West Side, for example, is back to very close what asking rents were in 2019. The last one is the industrial market, and that has been doing extremely well throughout the country. Even New York City, $1.75 billion, 60% higher than the average in the past five years in terms of transactions, but also 13% more when it comes to pricing. We've seen institutions placing bets there. So when we try to look forward and assess what's going to happen, here's, what, here's some of the things that we see. The first thing is clearly the risk of recession. And if you read the news this morning, it seems like technically we're in a recession. It's just not clear how fast, how much, how long, but we are probably going to get there eventually. But what's interesting about New York City is that it's considered safer than other places, and real estate in general is considered a safer asset class. But interest rate, interest rate is not helpful for real estate, and we've seen that. But this time around, we have to look at it somehow in conjunction with inflation. And inflation has been a significant positive influencer when it comes to real estate. We believe that will continue. We have a new sheriff in town, and Mayor Adams has a plan. He has a housing plan, a rezoning plan. He's pro-business, so we're very hopeful there. Can he execute? We don't know. We believe he can, and it's something that's on our watch list. Another thing that's on our watch list is the elections, the state elections that are taking place in November. We need to see how many pro-business leaders are going to be there to help us there. And there are two items that I think I mentioned, one of them, that are important to us. One is to encourage development of rental housing through a tax abatement or other means. And the second is to encourage the renovation of existing units. The J51 tax abatement was taken away as well. So these are two things that I think are important. The last thing is that there are a lot of different projects that the city is doing. One of them is the connection of the Long Island Railroad with Grand Central. It's supposed to bring 160,000 people per day, and that's supposed to happen in December. In addition to that, the beauty is that the LIR is going to increase capacity 
by 40%. So if we try to wrap this up, we still have that risk of recession and how deep that recession is going to be. But when it comes to New York City, the local indicators are positive. The demand drivers still have a lot of upside. The local leadership is a lot more pro-business than the prior administration. And based on the numbers, at least, we see that New York City is still undervalued. Therefore, what we think will happen in the next six months, we'll still see transactions, maybe not to the tune of $22 billion. Maybe it's going to be 15% or 20% lower, but we'll still see substantial transactions going through. I think pricing will probably stay somewhat stable.